Welcome to the Abundant Grace Podcast, where we discuss the gospel, freedom in Christ, and victorious Christianity. My name is Emily Lewis, and I am so honored that you are here. Sometimes Christianity can feel complicated or become heavy. I'm here to lighten that load. I pray that the chats had on this broadcast will empower and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Hi there, friends. Welcome to this week's episode of the Abundant Grace Podcast. Today, I got to sit down with Sheila Ray Gregoire, Rebecca Lindenbach, and Joanna Swatsky, the authors of The Great Sex Rescue. We had an awesome conversation about sex and intimacy and marriage and how all of these play into our society's view of women such a valuable conversation. I will tell you up front that you might want to pop your earbuds in if you have littles around when you're listening to this um, because we do get into some stuff that you might not want the little people around you to hear. But I hope that you enjoy this episode. I've been following Sheila's blog for many years and she has been such a blessing to me. I've also been uh, blessed by the parenting book that Rebecca wrote a few years ago. So it was such a joy and privilege to get to sit down with them, talk about this really important project that is their ministry and their book. Welcome to the show, Sheila, Rebecca, and Joanna. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Would you mind introducing yourself for my audience if they don't know you, and then we'll get into the interview. Okay, so I'll start. So I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire, and I've been blogging at To Love, Honor, and Vacuum since 2008. And since 2012, when the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex came out, I've mostly been talking about sex. Um, and I have a really weird job in the sense that my daughter works for me. Hello, <laughs> that's me. Yes, I'm the other half of that incredibly strange equation. Yeah, I'm Rebecca Gregoire Linden Mack. I am kind of, I work, do a project manager kind of job. I help create courses. I help um, with the podcast that we have, the Bear Marriage Podcast, and uh, I'm also obviously a co-author of The Great Sex Rescue, which is what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. And I'm Joanna Sawatsky. Uh, I live in Iqaluit, Nunavut, which is way up in the Arctic, and uh, I am an epidemiologist who now works as a research coordinator with Sheila and Rebecca, uh, coming up with awesome projects we can do with lots of cool collaborators, um, and then also just running stats and, and doing the research for our books. So yeah, it's really fun. Awesome. I'm so glad to have all three of you here. I actually found your blog in 2012. Sheila, when oh, really? the okay. Great Sex Rescue was still on your blog, actually, not a book yet. Yeah. <laughs> or I guess it would have been 31, ga- 31 yeah, days. 31 to days sex. to Great Sex. Yeah, yeah. It was 29 days back then. And then we made it 31. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, I'd love to talk to you about evangelicals' view of sex and lust and women and how that kind of ties into some recent tragedies that we've seen with the shooting in Georgia or uh, Robbie Zacharias, how do those factor in to those kind of tragedies? Yeah. When we were doing our, this big project, you know, it started because my mom um, actually decided to read the number one best-selling marriage book out there, which is love and respect Christian marriage book. Well, uh, five love languages is the number one, but 
uh, the one that specifically talked about sex in any way yeah. um, was love and respect. And we reviewed it to see what it said about sex. And it was, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we delve into this culture of evangelicalism even more, cause we hadn't read things as my mom, like she said, she's written about marriage and sex for so long. You've always said, I was, I was just a really afraid of plagiarizing. So I never actually read any book, which I know sounds really weird when you're writing books in an area, but I actually had never read marriage books until two years ago. Yeah. Cause you didn't want to accidentally copy mm-hmm. anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. And so totally we were, it. Yeah. And so we started delving more and more into all these bestsellers. We started looking into blog posts, into sermons, into, you know, conferences. And we started seeing these same Mm -hmm. themes emerging again and again. And they're really concerning themes like men need sex and it's women's job to give it, Mm -hmm. you know, men are insatiable sexual creatures. Um, And really our best bet as humans, as couples, is that he's able to restrain his sexual urges and settle for only one woman instead of, you know, taking it out on Mm -hmm. pornography or multiple partners or, you know, objectifying every woman he sees in the streets through lust. Mm -hmm. And obviously these books don't say that like word for word. They don't say, well, hopefully he only objectifies one woman the rest of his life. But when you read between the lines, when we're told again and again through these books that men are visual in a way women can never understand, you know, a man can't not want to look at women who pass by men have this mental Rolodex that of sexual images that pops up in their head all the time. And it's these obtrusive sexual thoughts that they can't help. And so women, you need to understand how honorable your man is when he is trying not to look at women. And when he sees women as the enemy, you know, like there's these blog posts where you're talking about bouncing your eyes for men. And it literally lists women as the enemy. Mm -hmm. It says, know your enemy and includes women as joggers and stuff. And so what happens is over and over what I think happens and what we we've kind of talked about a lot is we've in essence groomed a whole generation of Christians to believe that sex is something men need and men are constantly going to be hypervigilant towards. They're Mm -hmm. constantly going to have a felt need for, and it's women's job to make sure that that fight is as easy for men as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why girls are all told to wear T-shirts at the beach Mm -hmm. youth group at Mm -hmm. least once. Right. Mm -hmm. It's why Mm -hmm. girls are told modesty rules. It's why women are told you have to have sex with your husband when he wants it or else he might watch pornography. Mm -hmm. Right. It's why in Kevin Lehman's uh, sheet music, for instance, there's an example about a young couple who has like uh, who has a couple young kids at home and the wife is exhausted and run down. And the husband is just, you know, thinking, man, I wish we had more sex. And he tries to plan a date night. But like, she's like, you can't just plan a date night. We have to get babysitters and I'm exhausted. And uh, the story ends with the man turning to pornography and Lehman saying what Brenda, the woman needed to understand was that like the sexual winter was costing their marriage. There was Mm -hmm. nothing about what, how the pornography using husband had to understand because we have this mentality that men are sexually ravenous beasts Mm -hmm. and it is woman's job to tame them. Yeah. And, and we're so, not, yeah, we're not saying that no, a sex drive is wrong no, and we're not right. saying that guys shouldn't have sex drives. We're just saying the way that it's portrayed really gets away from the biblical idea of what sex is yeah. and turns a sex drive into something which simply objectifies and uses women rather than something which is intimate and life-giving. 
Yeah. And so is it really any surprise when you have men who become predatory or who see like the, the shooter in Atlanta, he was eliminating the temptation. Like these are the kinds of language that we actually see mm-hmm. in these books is, you know, we talk about, yeah, eliminating temptation by bouncing your eyes instead of recognizing that the temptation is happening because you are wanting to objectify an image bearer of God, not because she wore a skirt that you find hot, right. you know? Yep. Um, and that's just where we, we want to help. That's why we call it the great sex rescue our book, right? Cause this is where we are as a culture in a lot of churches. And we think that it's important and that we're able to rescue the messages that we're hearing about sex and rescue Christian sexuality in a sense, mm-hmm. so that it's no longer about seeing women as either the redeemer or the enemy and mm-hmm. seeing men as the yes. constant predator only mm-hmm. two steps away. Right. But rather seeing sexuality as a way that, you know, couples can meet and have a mingling of souls and have a passionate embrace that's truly intimate and is freeing and life-giving and humanizing, not a using or a, you know, numbing of unwanted urges. Mm-hmm. Right. Can we talk for a second about the difference between noticing someone's beautiful and attraction mm-hmm. and lust? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause sexual attraction is not a sin. Yeah. Okay. Like what Jesus said was a man who looks at a woman with lust. So looking is deliberate. So it's a deliberate action. And then with lust, that's a deliberate mindset. Mm -hmm. So you're doing a deliberate action paired with a deliberate mindset. That's what the sin is. That means that seeing is not a sin. It means being sexually attracted is not a sin. (laughs) It means noticing a woman has breasts is not a sin. (laughs) But imagine these poor boys in youth group grow up and they're taught that, you know, you need to bounce your eyes because all these women are temptation and all around them, the girls are given these modesty messages about not being stumbling blocks. And so the boys feel like if I notice she has breasts, I'm sinning. And we don't have boys who are able to just relate to girls as friends. We have boys that always feel like there's something wrong with me. I'm sinning. I can't see her as anything other than a sexual object. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely, oh, go ahead. No, as I say, really the difference between noticing and lusting is that you can notice someone's beautiful, but if you're able just to kind of go along your day and not think about them in a sexual way, Mm -hmm. you haven't lusted. No, even if you think, man, her figure looks great, you know, like, or man, she looks like she's been working out. You know, that's or man, lust. he has a good yeah, six pack. <laughs> women obviously are visual too. Yeah. Yes. You know, like and yeah. and I just I think that that just is something that our our boys need to be freed from as well. And I'm a I'm a mom of a boy, so that's what I'm quite passionate about. Mm-hmm. My son will sure. not be hearing that message growing Mm-mm. up because mm-hmm. that's that was me. I was afraid of men, like yeah. just not because I was afraid of being objectified, because I was t- everything was over sexualized. Mm-hmm. I was afraid of lusting them and mm-hmm. I could not see their humanness. And that's something that God brings situations still into my life to heal that gap because mm-hmm. it's so, it's such an unfortunate thing that we can uh, see somebody as an object instead of an image bearer. Yeah. I love how you said that it made you not be able to see men's humanness either. Right. Cause when we objectify one, we objectify the other. 
Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Like when we teach boys and we teach girls to objectify women in terms of seeing them as threat levels, which by the way is so offensive, right? Because what are more attractive women more threatening? Like Mm -hmm. so offensive. Mm -hmm. Um, but when we, when we teach ourselves and girls to see girls as threats and see and teach boys to see girls as threats to their purity, then by definition, we're also going to see boys as threats to girls, right? Yeah. Like it, it, we need to not get into this, this perspective of everyone's the enemy, but rather say, how can we relate? How can we be emotionally healthy? How can we mm-hmm. be emotionally available to each other? And how can we learn to just empathize? Yeah. But, but what we do know is this idea that all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle Mm -hmm. really hurts women. Yeah. We know it hurts men too, but in our study, we we surveyed 20,000 women for our book Mm -hmm. and we were looking at how different evangelical teachings affect women's sexual and marital satisfaction. And one of the ones that really hurts women is this idea that all men struggle with lust. I'll let Joanna tell the numbers because she's better at it than I am. I really think it's super interesting when we look at the effect of the every man's battle message on libido. So if women believe that lust is every man's battle, 62% of them said that their husband has a higher libido. But if they don't believe the message, only 52% say they have the, their husband has the higher libido. And uh, so that means a lot more women are saying either that they have a higher libido or that they're about the same, um, which is amazing. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing, too, is that this is one of the beliefs that hurts women, even if they never believe it, even mm. if they're only taught it, then when they get married, they trust their husbands less. And that's going to impact their marital and sexual satisfaction. Um, and so this, and, and that's kind of sad because you think about all the teenage girls who are hearing this in youth group and they're hearing that, you know, guys are just going to lust after you and you need to be careful. You need to not be a stumbling block. And it, it, it makes you put up this wall between you and men. And then you're 25 years old and you meet the man you're going to marry and you already don't trust him. He could be the best mm-hmm. guy in the world and you already don't trust him. So here's some of the other things we found. Yeah, here, I'll read you just some of the stats we found about that particular one, how it affects women sexually. So if women believe that all men struggle with lust, it is every man's battle, they are 79% more likely to say that they engage in sex with their husbands only because they feel they have to. Mm-hmm. So they don't like sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sad. Um, It's so sad. I know. (laughs) Additionally, they are 52% more likely to say when it comes to sex, I could take it or leave it. No surprise there, right? The two Mm -hmm. go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But here are the things that are, that are, yeah, here are two that I find really interesting, but also really sad. These women are also 27% less likely to feel comfortable talking to their husbands about what feels good sexually or what she needs sexually. Mm. But additionally, she's also 27% less likely to say that her husband spends enough attention on foreplay so that she can feel excited and aroused when they begin intercourse. And we wonder if part of the reason is because if you think that lust is every man's battle, then you tend to think of sex as something that he needs, not something you need. Mm-hmm. And so you just don't prioritize your own needs. And that's why I think there was another one, like they're, they're something like 59% less likely to be aroused during sex and all kinds of other stuff, because we're not prioritizing our own sexual needs because we feel like his needs are so much greater. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then one of the things that was huge for me when finding your blog, when I first got married was that sex isn't just physical. It's that yeah. It is the foreplay. It is the connecting beforehand. It's emotional. It's physical. Yes, but it's also spiritual. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And there's nothing about that in seeing sex as a methadone like treatment for not wanting to watch porn yeah. anymore. Like Emerson <laughs> Egerton, yeah. love and respect says, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say that men have a need for physical release through sexual intimacy. And so he's defining sex mm-hmm. as physical release. Mm-hmm. And this is very similar to the way that every man's battle talks about it. It, it. it talks about how if a man has a lust problem, his eyes are a lot harder to control when he doesn't have sex very often. So he, he so they tell women, give him release. So sex becomes about release. And I, what is the effect on women of reading all of these books? Because it's usually women who read books, right? Like women read the majority of marriage books. So you read all these marriage books and it talks about men's need for physical release. And that makes sex sound really kind of ugly mm-hmm. and really shallow. And that's not how God talks about it. Like I love um, in Genesis chapter four, it's, it says Adam knew his wife, Eve, and we'd laugh at that, right? Like we think that that doesn't mean anything. That's just a euphemism and God's embarrassed of using the word for sex. But I wonder if it's actually that, that God wanted us to know that sex is more than physical because the Hebrew word that's used there, Adam knew his wife is the same Hebrew word that David uses when he says, search me and know me. Oh God. Mm-hmm. Like sex is supposed to be this intimate connection between two people. It's not just about physical release, let alone only a husband's. (laughs) It is physical, yes. And we see that in Song of Solomon, you know, but it's also a deep knowing. And when we miss that intimacy picture, we really distort what sex is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that made me, from at least my story, feel gross. I felt gross for even needing sex, like wanting it, initiating it. And I don't know, it just, it messes everybody, everybody up. Yeah, you're totally right. And you're so not alone in that either. We talked to a lot of women in our focus groups about uh, kind of one of our, one of our main focus group topics was, did you have any belief or set of beliefs that you, you know, got over or you changed your mind on and it radically changed your marriage or your sex life. Mm-hmm. And there was one woman that we talked to who we call Sandra in the book who had so much shame around sexuality. She had so much shame. She said that for the first like 20 years of her marriage, sex was something that she really believed you do it because it is your job as the wife to make sure that your husband gets sex so that he doesn't leave or he doesn't look at other women, or he doesn't watch porn. You know, it was sex is a tool that women unfortunately have to have because it's the only thing that makes men stay, right? That was kind of the message she got her growing up was really tumultuous. She Mm -hmm. had a lot of these kind of messages and she became a Christian and she started reading these marriage books and they just cemented those horrible messages from herself growing up where it's like sex is just what women do to make men stay. So she gets married to a great guy. They're married for like 20 years and she feels so guilty about sex because she doesn't feel like it's right for a woman to want sex. And she said that uh, after like the morning after they had done anything in bed, she would spend her devotions uh, repenting and confessing everything they had done just in case something they had done in the bedroom wasn't sanctioned by God. Um, And she couldn't look herself in the mirror afterwards. That's what she said is she couldn't look at herself herself. in the mirror, she couldn't face herself after she had had sex. She had to kind of let the shame go away and then she could look at herself again. So she talks to her husband after 20 years of deciding that, oh, and also, sorry, here's the other biggest one. 
no, no surprise with a lot of that shame and these horrible messages, she had a really quite severe case of vaginismus, um, which is sexual pain, uh, which is an involuntary mus um, contraction of the mus of the muscles in the vag of in the vagina, which um, can make penetration um, even impossible, but always makes it painful. Um, that's what that is. And it's involuntary and it's, it, it is treatable, but for a lot of people, it, it can be tied to a lot of this, this mental, um, the, their men their mentality about sex. So she's, she's going through like 20 years of marriage, feeling so shameful and so guilty, but so trapped because you mm -hmm. can't say no to sex, right. Or else he'll leave or he'll watch porn or you won't be a good Christian wife anymore. And so she's reading all these books, um, all these bestsellers, and they're all giving her the same message. And she eventually just goes to her husband and just says, I can't do this anymore. You know, I just feel every time you touch me, every time you kiss me, every time we have sex, I just, I can't say no. And I don't know how to do this because it's really destroying me. But I feel like, you know, I, I'm never allowed to say no to this. And he looks at her and says, what? That's not how I want you to think. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to start watching porn. No, that's disgusting. I just love you. And I want this to be good for both of us. And that triggered this whole kind of worldview shift that she mm -hmm. took where she started to discover that sex is meant to be for women too. And not just for women, but for her. You know, mm -hmm. like God yes. didn't just make her to enjoy sex and because her husband needs sex. Right. God made her to enjoy sex because she matters just as much as he does in a mm -hmm. sexual relationship, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So yes. she started systematically um, combating all those negative beliefs. So whenever she'd have a thought like good girls don't like sex, she'd think, well, no, because God gave good girls a clitoris. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like she would do all these kind of yeah. um, self-talk in essence, like kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy kind of approach to, uh, you know, all these negative mm -hmm. beliefs. And what she said was hearing her husband tell her you're allowed to say no. And then he actually proved that to her by giving her like the ability to use safe words, even for the most vanilla things like kissing. Mm -hmm. um, and they would stop in the middle and, you know, you know, you, you don't seem into it tonight, hon. And I would rather wait until you're in a better headspace. And mm -hmm. those kinds of things. What she said was realizing God's design for sex was for her too. And it wasn't just something that she it was, it wasn't a necessary evil, mm -hmm. you know, it was a gift and seeing her husband respect and honor her in the bedroom as he had been doing all along. But now mm -hmm. she noticed it because mm -hmm. they'd actually talked about it. Right. Mm -hmm. She said her body physically changed. And, um, you know, in working with the pelvic floor physiotherapist and getting over these, um, negative beliefs, she was able to have pain-free sex. She was able to have, you know, an orgasm. Mm -hmm. She was able to enjoy sex. Her sex drive came back. Mm -hmm. And not only that, she said that she, um, for a while, she was, after she would have sex and when she was dealing with kind of getting over that shame, she would look at herself in the mirror right after and say, God loves you and God loves what you just did in there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so cute. What she said at the end of the interview was now, instead of confessions, her devotionals in the morning are praise, praises of thanksgiving mm. for the gift that God has given mm -hmm. them. And that's really our hope for a lot of couples mm -hmm. that no matter where you start out in what you believe about sex, how sex feels, you know, how, um, what you've been taught in the past, what you've internalized, what experiences have told you about sex. What we're hoping is that we can help couples. We can help individuals 
discover what God's design for sex is and run after that and enjoy it and give yourself permission to enjoy it with just, you know, everything you have in you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just have fun. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the pain because hearing Mm -hmm. you talk about the statistics before, it just floors me that the evangelicals that you survey are more likely to have pain because of these bad beliefs that we have seen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't even realize that everybody knows what erectile dysfunction is. I mean, you watch any game show, the commercials are all about erectile dysfunction. Very few people know what vaginismus is. And yet if mm. people in their twenties and thirties, vaginismus is far more common. I think we found that roughly 22%, Joanna, you, why don't you deal with this one? Yeah, it was 22% of women in our survey had experienced uh, significant sexual pain not related to childbirth. And 6.7% of women had experienced pain so severe that the penetration was impossible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so and this is a really is- common problem and it's our problem, you know, like it's an evangelical problem. And that's actually been known in the literature since the 1970s. The fact that that evangelical women in particular, conservative Christian women have a higher rate of sexual pain disorders is well-known and well-documented. And yet when we looked at Focus on the Family's website for the book, we could find no references to primary sexual pain, but there were plenty of articles about erectile dysfunction. And Mm -hmm. so we have to wonder why the silence in the evangelical world about this issue. And I mean, honestly, the only thing we can think of is that we're prioritizing men's pleasure over women's pain. Yeah. Yeah. And we did find that a number of beliefs were correlated with higher rates of pain. Cause mm-hmm. what we were, we, that's one of the reasons we wanted so many people to take our survey was because we actually wanted to get to the bottom of what causes sexual pain. And for that we needed, because sexual pain only affects us, you know, a, a smaller proportion of the population. We needed as many people as possible so we could slice and dice the data. And what we found is that there's certain beliefs that increase the rate of sexual pain. And one of the big ones is the idea that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Mm -hmm. That one's actually, um, if you believe that I engage, uh, if a woman is, if a woman says I engage with in sex with my husband only because I feel I have to, she's actually 1.8 times more likely to experience vaginismus. Like that's a big one. So believing this obligation sex message really does terrible things to sexual pain. And I think that's one of the big things is that, um, we think of sex as something which he can have no matter what or demand, no matter what is going on in your body. Um, And we hear that a lot, right? Your body is not yours. It belongs to your husband and you're not allowed to deny him and you're not allowed to deprive him. But that's not what 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about. 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't mean that you have to consent to one-sided painful intercourse. No. Mm-mm. 1 Corinthians 7 is about a, a marriage where a sexual relationship, which is mutual, pleasurable, and intimate, is an important part of that marriage. But sex, which is painful, is not something which takes her needs into account. Exactly. And 1 Corinthians 7 is about mutuality. Um, And so I think those verses have been really misused and weaponized against women. I will also say that every, everything I've ever seen talking about um, women's obligation to have sex using first Corinthians seven, just conveniently forgets that like the very next verse, Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. 
<laughs> Literally, like it, that's the end of that passage. And and what they all say is like, this is what the Bible says. A good Christian must. You're like Christian women understand your husband owns your body. It's in the Bible. Um. Paul literally says this is a concession, not a command, right. because what was happening was all these people were deciding just to not have sex anymore. And then their sex drives are going kind of wild because they were in so over like they, they were they were trying to un, they were trying to force themselves into a box they didn't need to fit in. Right. right? It's like, just enjoy your spouse. You're allowed to, you know, yes. you don't have to, but you're allowed to. And we took that as women. If you don't put out any time he asks, he has a right to have an affair in essence, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, it's just ridiculous. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, have you seen any, in your, any of your statistics that these lies impact people's relationship with God at all? We didn't measure that in our survey in particular, because frankly, our survey was already 130 (laughs) words long. It was 130 questions, minimum, not words. Yeah. Questions. If you were married, if you were remarried or divorced, it was longer depending on how you answered something. I think the average person took what, like 27 minutes to complete Mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, Something between 25 and 30 minutes to complete. So we it was very long already. Uh, We did talk about it in our focus groups though, Um, because that's where we got into more people's personal stories. I do know we talked to one woman who left the church because the whole gender role, um, how it played out in their marriage, their church was so focused on gender roles that when they got rid of gender roles, just everything else kind of, uh, just kind of went by the wayside. And this is happening in the middle of a lot of other big political Mm -hmm. things that they didn't agree with. And the church has set up this house of cards around sexuality and how we see gender in that, Mm -hmm. that if you are a very, loud brazen woman married to a meek submissive man all of a sudden are you even able to be a good christian husband and wife <laughs> right if you right. are you have to pretend to be someone you're not and i yeah. do right. know that, that has really damaged some people but other people we talked to you know the lies that they believed they believed came from god right right they believed these because they believed they came from god mm-hmm. And that's what so many women said was just recognizing that God didn't want them to be used was big. And we heard that from some of the, the, the divorcees, um, from bad marriages. Um, what they just said was just recognizing that that wasn't what God wanted for a marriage. You know, that would be huge. It's huge. And it's so healing, right? Like when you, when you go your whole life believing or your whole married life, your whole adult life, Believing in essence, like, you know, I'm, I'm meant to be used hopefully by only one man, right? you know, and hopefully, you know, he treats me okay, but like at the end of the day, this is my lot in life versus Mm -hmm. believing in the God who says I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, cause those two things are diametrically opposed. Yeah, they are. (laughs) So in your surveys, you found that evangelicals are suffering through this and your book is your hope to answer these lies. What else are you hoping for the book? Like, what's your mission? Um, what do you we hope? Want, we really want to help people recognize when stuff just isn't right. Mm-hmm. Because I think 
what we've done is we've said, if somebody has a big name and they've written a book, they must be right. Mm. So if I read that book and I'm uncomfortable with it, the problem must be with me. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. someone went to seminary, you know, someone's yeah. leading a youth retreat, someone's whatever it is, insert you know, qualification here, they can't be questioned anymore, right? Because someone's given them a stamp of approval. And so what we want to help people see is sex, the way God intended it is always mutual. It's always pleasurable. And it's always intimate. It's freely entered into it's pressure free, you know, and it's passion. That's what it's supposed to be. So when you're reading something, and it doesn't sound like that, you're allowed to ask yourself, Mm -hmm. is this really of Jesus? And I think if the Christian church gave ourselves permission to be discerning again, to be like the Bereans who studied everything the apostles said and measured it against scripture, if we let ourselves be discerning, I think we would find that a lot of the stuff that we're being taught doesn't measure up. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the other things we did, we didn't just survey 20,000 women. We also looked at the best-selling sex and marriage books in the evangelical church. So we, we looked at 13 books overall, um, absolutely our bestsellers, and we measured them on a rubric of 12 markings of healthy sexuality. Of those 13 books, four scored really well. Okay, Gift of Sex by the Panners, Boundaries in Marriage, Sacred Marriage, Intimate Issues, those scored really well. And the rubric was only on the sexual teaching. So some of those books had things on something other than sex. We didn't score it on those. We yeah. only talked about sexuality. Okay. But there were a lot of books that scored really badly. Hmm. And those books should never have been bestsellers. And so no. what we're hoping is that people will recognize that we've done a bad job in this area and you have the, you, God has given you the Holy Spirit. And so it's okay when you're reading something, if you think this doesn't sound right, to reject it, if you don't think it's of Jesus. I love that because so many times I feel like in churches, you hear something from the pulpit and you just, hmm, not sure, but you kind of tuck it in your back pocket anyway, Yeah. without, wait a second, where did that come from? And Does he have anything else to back that up? (laughs) Yeah. I think especially what we've seen is a lot of people in the Christian world, because we're all expected to, you know, only ever have sex with one person. Like that's the, (laughs) that's the ideal in evangelicalism. Right. And so what happens is we get a lot of people who uh, talk as if they're experts, Mm -hmm. but are they, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, have they, have they had, enough research done or are they only talking from their very limited experience it's fine to have limited experience that's i have very limited experience (laughs) (laughs) but if if you're a pastor like if you're a pastor with limited experience then we shouldn't expect him to be a sex expert exactly and a lot of our books have been written by people who have no expertise in the field Yep. And again, I think it's time to just question that. Well, and even um, if you have expertise in the field, for instance, like there's, there's a book that we review written by a clinical psychologist that has like almost no yeah, um, academic redeeming features. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It has uh, uh, like no academic uh, peer reviewed sources. Didn't do any research for the book that we can follow. Yeah. Um, right. And so it's, it's just, that's what we're hoping for is just that people will be emboldened and will be empowered to stand up and ask, okay, sure. This has the label Christian on it, but is it classified better as Christ-like or religious? Right. Which right. one is it? Cause it can be both. Sure. 
but is it Christ-like? Because a lot of our advice is not Christ-like. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's a really interesting thing to bring, to mention in this conversation. Is it religious or is it actually Christ-like? Mm-hmm. So many things we just adopt because they're the way that we've done them, mm-hmm. or this is the way the church has always done them um, without redeeming it and letting actually the gospel shape how we approach certain subjects. Yeah. I think the difference is religion is always about controlling people. It's always about trying to get people to fit a mold. Mm -hmm. And Christ-likeness is about recognizing the image of God in each other. And it's about serving each other. Um, You know, Jesus said in Matthew 20, that verses 25 to 28, that the Gentiles try to rule over you and have authority and power over you, but it's not supposed to be that way. You know, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And that's how we should, we should look at life. Like our lives, our marriages should be about serving one another. And if instead our book set up marriage as this power dynamic, where someone has an entitlement to use you, <laughs> that is not of Jesus. Yeah. Cause a lot of these books are very, very good at telling wives to serve their husbands. Mm-hmm. They're not very good at telling husbands to serve wives. Yeah. In fact, I would argue that many of these books actively discourage it. Well, and just to give an example, so you know what we're talking about, yeah. like, and this is your favorite example, oh, yes. like Kevin Lehman in Sheet Music says that if women are in their postpartum phase or if they have heavier periods or if they're simply not feeling their best, that they should give their husband sexual favors. And he uses a very euphemistic term that's rather explicit, which I will not use, but that they should give their husband sexual favors during that time if he's ready to climb the walls. And we just have a really difficult idea or thought like deal with the dealing with the fact that during her postpartum phase, when she has just pushed out a baby, that the main concern should be his sexual frustration rather than how he can serve her. And that's just such Mm -hmm. an excellent example of something that is, has that I'm sorry, I'm going to be very clear. There is no Jesus in that at all. There is no Jesus whatsoever in asking your postpartum wife for it, for any sort of sexual release. Mm -hmm. Nothing. No, Mm -hmm. do not do it. If she wants to, because a lot of women, Hey, maybe a couple, I've, I don't know. I've heard some women find that the postpartum hormones actually make their libidos go up. You know, you can try things if you want to, and it can be reciprocal too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I mean. But like, Oh my goodness. No, (laughs) just that is not of Jesus at all. And we need to be able to call that out. Like if you, if you actually acted that out, if a man goes to his wife when she's on her period and she is cramping and feeling horrible and downing Advil, you know, and he says, you know what, honey, I'm feeling a little bit Randy. (laughs) Can you help me out? Is that a good guy? Is that the kind of guy we all think, man, I wish my daughter could marry someone like that. (laughs) Are we thinking like, man, my sister, that would be a great husband for her. And the, and lest people think like, we are not anti-sex. We are, we are all for amazing sex. And for Pete's sake, we we have have a boost libido course and an orgasm course. And we have so many (laughs) tips in the book on, on how to figure out how to make sex great and and how to figure out how to make it feel good, especially because so many women have had such a problem with arousal. Um, and so many women have such a problem with orgasm. And so we're not against, against sex at all. It's just that the idea of seeing sex as a male entitlement is really something which hurts women. And it hurts men too, because it, 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 it makes them see sex solely in terms of physical release rather than in terms of intimacy. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's a great place to land. I hope that's what people take away. Just if we can focus on people's humanness, acting like Jesus and making sex more about intimacy than about physical release, I think we'll all be headed in a good direction. <laughs> yes, exactly. And ironically, if you make it more on intimacy and it's based in a good relationship where you treat each other in a Christ-like way, frankly, you're going to have more physical release for both people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for just seeing a need and uh, diving in. Did you ever think that you would, of course, not when you started your blog, but when you first came out with um, talking about more, uh, more about sex and intimacy, did you ever think this would be where you'd land? No, I mean, and this, the great sex rescue was such a huge project, like 20,000 women. And we're just really praying that it changes the evangelical conversation about sex because we've realized we got to go bigger. It's not enough just to say what's what's good. We need to start helping people identify what's bad so they really can walk into abundant life. Mm, thank you so much. I, it's been a pleasure to visit with you. You too. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Abundant Grace podcast. I would love it if you would share this episode with a friend so that they can hear this encouragement and be empowered in their walk with Jesus as well. It would also mean the world to me if you would leave a rating and review on Apple for the Abundant Grace podcast. It really does make a world of difference in getting this podcast into other people's ears so they can be equipped in their relationship with God as well. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. You can find me hanging out on Instagram, emily.abundantgrace, or you can send me an email, hello at emilyklewis.com. That's emily, the letter K, L-O-U-I-S.com. And until next week, remember that God's grace abounds and won't ever run out.